But all that to say is, is that when he read his Bible, there was no difference between Joshua and Jesus because his Greek Bible called the son of none, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So when he says, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, mm-hmm. right? He, he mentioned, he uses that name, right? He's drawing that connection, mm-hmm. right? But he's not, he's not Jesus, the son of none, right? He's Jesus, the son of God. He mm-hmm. traces his lineage somewhere else. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. We are seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. Mm. I'm Kent. And I'm Nathan. And we welcome our listeners to, we're in a series called According to Scripture. And we've been working our way through the Old Testament forward and backward, sort of out of order, looking for uh, ways we see the gospel in the Old Testament, ways the Old Testament prefigured the gospel. Today, we're, our title is Joshua, the Successor. Mm-hmm. Not the successful so much as right. <laughs> the successor. Maybe you could even do a play on words there and talk about how we tend to read the Bible as Joshua, the successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we're trying to say, well, you know, that's all well and good, but yeah. more importantly, he's the successor. Yeah. We're going to make a point about that today. Moses' successor as the type for Christ. While Moses encountered God briefly, his successor remained in God's presence. Moses failed to enter the land, but Joshua became a conqueror priest. The man Joshua would die, but the name could continue to point to the one who would come to fulfill the covenant. Mm-mm-mm. Good stuff. And I would like to begin with the discussion by asking about like ways of reading the Bible, because... What we're doing is we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. We're looking for the gospel message in the Old Testament. And I would like to say, I love this stuff. This is always very intriguing to me. I'm com- I find it compelling. It's a different way to, uh, it's a different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a traditional or typical or stereotypical reading, say, of the story of Joshua, right. where you would focus on Joshua's success and, you know, and his and how he did it with God and don't be afraid uh, be courageous. The Lord your God is with you. Uh, what do you What do you have to say, Nathan, about reading the Bible that way, gleaning insights about the say the life of faith by reading the Bible that way, failing to see the ways in which it points to Christ, prefigures Christ, teaches us the gospel, failing to see that? Hmm. Um, it, what value, <laughs> despite that, is there in reading that reading in that more stereotypical way? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it's value that, um, you know, we've talked about how reality kind of exists, at least as far as we're aware, on two tiers. So there's this tier that is the uh, elementary principles of the world. It's learning to live as uh, according to just the way things are. So um, worldly wisdom, you might say, uh, you might read the book of Proverbs, say. And the book of Proverbs is is great. It's true. And it talks about things like prudence and, um, you know, uh, making good choices and all that. And then certainly I wouldn't be negative about any of that, but it's operating on a particular level. <clears throat> Some people say the same author of Proverbs is uh, the author of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes offers lots of advice. Um, but if you read Ecclesiastes and then you read the Gospels, <laughs> there's some disconnect there. Like, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it's just like there's just no point to anything. The best you can do is work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor before you die. You know, that's the kind of advice. And then there's some general morality. Like, you know, when you're young, have fun, enjoy your youth, don't screw up too much, you know. And all of that is almost like this parental advice to a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you read Ecclesiastes and you think, um, is this the same idea? Is this the same theme? What? Why would we be saying all of these kinds of, um, I don't know, somewhat pessimistic sorts of things? Um, and then Jesus comes along and he's like, you know, seek first the kingdom, take no thought for your life. Um, he's very much like today has enough trouble of its own. Whereas Proverbs, Ecclesiastes would say, you know, think, think about tomorrow, plan for tomorrow. A foolish man is one that doesn't do that kind of a thing. And so which one is it? And um, it seems that 
Ecclesiastes, that refrain throughout Ecclesiastes is under the sun. And so he says, what, you know, what, what pleasure does a man derive out of all of his works under the sun? Um, so it seems that there is a, an approach or a point of view, a perspective on Scripture that is within that, you know, the biosphere. <laughs> you can say, you know, the sky is the top and, the, and terra firma is the bottom, and you're living in that layer of reality. And there are um, principles to allow a person to manage that properly. Even like Christian principles? I don't know. I, I, I would say not. I would say that Christian principles are ones that assume that the sky is not the limit. Okay. Um, that there's something else. Okay. So uh, Paul would say in Colossians 3, seek those things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So that's a very different approach. That that's We're not saying how you should live under the sun. We're saying how you should live as someone who belongs above the sun, you know, mm -hmm. using kind of an old cosmology, this idea that um, our destiny, our really um, our origin point is, is this transcendent realm. And so as you know, Paul says that in Christ, you know, we died with him, we were raised with him, and now we're seated with him <laughs> at God's right hand, that there's some sort of a, um, a spirituality that comes with Christ that transcends the world and its way. So most advice, um, self-help gurus, all of this advice, it's, it, it comes from this earthly mindset. And it's not that it's evil. Uh, God created the world and everything in it. The world has particular laws that it runs by, natural laws. I think that there are social laws, um, psychological, maybe maybe even spiritual laws that govern the way things work down here. Mm -hmm. And that those, those, those are not, you know, they're, they're not wicked or evil in and of themselves, but that they can be turned, they are corruptible. And so that's what's wrong with them. Jesus comes, he lives within that sphere, I think for the first 30 years of his life, that he's very much, you know, uh, Paul says that he was born of a woman, born under the law. So he very much lived that way. Um, and which is why he was somewhat unremarkable that when he actually took on his earthly ministry, people weren't like, well, it's about time. You know, we always knew you were going to start some miracle working itinerant preaching ministry. I mean, when we've just been waiting on you to do it. But when he does it, everybody's like, what? What's he doing? You know, what happened? Uh, but I, I think that he was living just a good life, mm -hmm. uh, a Proverbs, Ecclesiastes kind of a life. Uh, then he's baptized, and the Spirit comes on him like a dove, and now he's living some other life. Mm -hmm. um, and this life seems to have a casual disregard for a lot of the things that were taboo in his culture, like uh, the Sabbath. You know, he almost seems to go out of his way. Uh, and, and it's not that those things were wrong. It's just that those things presume um, a, a closed set of variables Whereas the spiritual life, the Christian life, presumes an infinite set of variables or a connection to the infinite. And so there's, there's not that same kind of quarantine mentality that we see in the Old Testament law. You know, this need to have a distinctive kind of fashion, a distinctive kind of diet. All of this assumes that we're within this, this finite set of variables and that we are susceptible to these principles once somebody takes hold of the faith the faith of the son now they begin to transcend those so all that to say that we can read the bible on on the level of just human wisdom or you know human wisdom from god so you know it doesn't take a whole lot of faith to say if you work hard and you save your money you'll do better than someone who's lazy and spends everything they get, right? That's not a, mm -hmm. it's not a faith proposition, mm -hmm. right? It's not a faith proposition to say, hey, if you do this, uh, you'll be arrested and executed. 
You know, it doesn't take a ton of faith for that, right? So when the when Paul says the law is not of faith, he's not saying that the that to read the Torah and uh, to accept it doesn't require that we believe in an invisible being. He's saying that it doesn't depend on faith in order to function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can just do this stuff, right? Which means that there has to be a, a superficial layer to inspiration, if there are these layers of existence reality okay so there's the layer that is this practical earthly makes sense to everybody layer um and then there is a layer that is this cannot work unless god shows up okay and and so scriptures is as you read scripture what we do and and i think what all of us do is that we tend to underestimate it we think and we underestimate it by thinking wow this is wisdom from god and it's more than that. So let's say, you know, we read about Joshua. We read this advice to Joshua because that's what we're looking for. We want advice. We want to know. We want to have a better life. Right. How do I cope with life? How do I make sure that I don't end up with regrets or failures? And and so here's an ancient wisdom that's going to give you that. Right. Um, and so when we see uh, God is telling Joshua, you know, be strong and very courageous and all that, it, we latch onto that, right? Especially men's ministries and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, maybe, you know, that's that's good advice on one level. So I, I would say that it's it's not an either or, mm-hmm. but it, that there is a layer of revelation in Scripture that most most of us, I think, because we're just looking for good moral teaching. Mm-hmm. That we don't probe any deeper into scripture um, to find this message that is running underneath it. Um, and as Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians 3, he said that today when they read the law, there's a veil on their hearts, speaking of the Jews, mm-hmm. because they had not turned to Christ the Lord. Now, if we turn to Christ the Lord, what we see is that. Here's the here's the t- here's the um, ultimate prototypical the man that we're supposed to be, okay? Does this guy's life look anything like all of these Old Testament promises of work hard, keep your nose clean, you know, don't get into too much trouble, uh, live a long life, full of years, leave behind a, a bevy of children who will then carry on your legacy, leave an estate to them. Do we see that in Jesus? No. <laughs> Obviously, right? He's almost, he's like the antithesis of all of those Old Testament um, promises and that advice. He, he seems to just be blowing it all off. So for a Jewish person to turn to the Lord, uh, and, and Paul calls it the offense of the cross, for a Jewish person to turn to the Lord, they have to, they almost have to say that there must be more here. Mm-hmm. Right, um, that they've been living in this one mode that, and, and hey, it works. It, you know, if you look at Jewish society in almost every culture, here's a group of people who are prudent. They think about the next generation. They have community. They take care of each other. You know, uh, they are thrifty and hardworking, and so they rise to the top in every society. It works, but there's nothing mystifying or stupefying about that you can say hey if any group of people did these exact same things it would work Mm -hmm. and someone could say well see god gave good advice it's like yes but also no like you know we can uh, other philosophers have given similar advice that's similarly good Mm -hmm. and they it's not that the authors of the bible plagiarize them it's just that there's a way of things it's good advice for life uh, under the sun. Right. Yeah. And then John, you know, the Apostle John comes on and in First John 2, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know? So for a, a Jewish person to, uh, somebody who was really steeped in the, their scriptures to come to Christ, it is, they would have to accept an entirely different paradigm about the purpose of life. And in so doing, now are going to have to go back to their scriptures and find another layer if they're going to retain 
their scriptures. And I think that that was the difficulty for a lot of them. And I think that that it's why it's important that the apostles went into the synagogues and told people to open the scrolls that they had, mm-hmm. right? That there, there wasn't a new book. And I just can't emphasize that strongly enough that the narrative was not, we've come with a new book that's going to update the old. It is open the old one. Let me show you something embedded therein, mm-hmm. something running underneath because there's a lot of things especially in the narrative sections of, of scripture which are extensive that just don't seem to make a ton of sense apart um, from christ apart but, from christ but now yeah. with christ it's sort of like the, the pieces come together and you can see the picture right right and i think i think that was why it was such a powerful message and a threatening message to a lot of people because there is this layer that we're being given that's a transcendent one that's now open. And, uh, and so we can see scripture in a new light. Um, and, and you see Paul doing that with it. You read like um, in Romans 10 and it always kind of threw me off because, you know, Paul's use of that uh, closing address uh, of Moses, I think in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is like, hey, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. You know, it's in your heart. You don't have to. And Moses said, you don't have to go across the sea to find it or the other side of the sea or to up into heaven to retrieve it. And Paul finds a whole Christological significance in that, right? Um, he, you know, he sees it as the word of the gospel. Right. And that you don't have to go to the other side of the sea, meaning the bottom of the sea, not the other shore. Um and he could be right. I mean, he, you know, these these were his primary languages, not ours. Um, but for him, the bottom of the ocean and the and the underworld where the spirits, you know, the disembodied dead uh, lived are the same. So he would say, you didn't have to. That Moses was saying, you don't have to go down into the into the underworld to retrieve Christ. You don't have to go up into heaven to bring Christ down from heaven. But that Christ is here. He's with us in the spoken word of the gospel so that was how paul understood this address right now we can say well that's that's not very good hermeneutics is it you know um but what moses is saying is you know he is using the hebrew word for the spoken word remember that uh there is is a bar to look it back up you might be right yeah yeah something well in greek it's right 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 rhema and logos logos is like more of the um, message the overall meaning of a, of a thing so we use it as word but it is a is a message so a coherent um, idea that is being transferred so that's logos right then you have rhema which is the spoken word anytime someone speaks i think i did a, a brief word study one time and yeah. it looked like basically anytime someone said anything right they rhemaed right yeah and so uh but moses is he is a minister of a written word, right? What was new with Moses is that there is a codified law. And so as Moses is counseling people to attend to what's been revealed, it would have made more sense if he would have used the word for a written word or, you know, a body of work. But he used something for a spoken word, and he says, this is in your mouth and in your heart. So he's not saying it's it's on the tablets or it's in the scroll. So Paul would say Moses isn't referring to the written word, the law. So he would you know he and he juxtaposes that with when he when Moses spoke of the law, he said the one that does these things will live, right? And so that's that's the law, but this other one is one that is in our heart, it's in our mouth. Um and so it's accessible. All that to say, practically speaking, even the the Bible, the written word, for most people, you know, we don't have it entire the entirety of it in our mouth or our heart. Mm-hmm. At at any given moment, we don't. You know, even right. if we had it all memorized, mm-hmm. just to just to say it. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Paul would say, you know, the summation that this word that gives life, that this word that Moses was speaking of maybe unbeknownst to him even is that Jesus is Lord, mm-hmm. you know, 
and that that becomes the summary of of all of it. Um, so all that to say is that there's a Christological outlook. So someone could look at what Paul's saying in Romans 10 and say, man, that's not very good hermeneutics. And Paul would say, um, well, you know, then why did Moses use this word when he's talking about, if he's talking about this extensive body of, of written, mm-hmm. of written code, mm-hmm. you know, would you say that the laws of the United States are with you? They're in your heart and in your mouth, right? Right. Would we say that? No. no. <laughs> you can't have a legal code in your mouth and in your heart. Right. Yeah. And yet that's what Moses gave. Is there a word that Moses gave that wasn't some extensive legal code? You know? And Paul would say, yeah, it's it's the gospel. I mean, in that in that immediate context, he's talking about a time when Israel would come back from captivity and God would write his laws on their heart, uh-huh. you know, that there is a, there's a coming word that would be the law on the heart. Okay. And it, and, and so there's companion volumes. It's just that one of them is written and one of them spoken. And that if we use the spoken word to interpret the written word, we were going to see that there's a new hermeneutic. If we use a gospel to reinterpret the old Testament, right. That will be the new hermeneutic, and it will provide insight and meaning that we will miss otherwise. Yes. So it, you know, logically, it's probably uh, it would probably fall short of uh, of a logical um, critique, but it, it might sound circular. So here's what I would say: If you go to the Old Testament looking for Jesus, you will find him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now someone would say, "Well, of course you do. You were looking for him." Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and that, and I think that's true and I, I don't make any apologies for that, but the, but I would also say that I will find him in places where without him, the old Testament, it sounds dissonant that there are rips and stitches in the scripture mm-hmm. that don't come together without Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, and I can, you know, I can demonstrate that. So like in Genesis 22, we talked about how those two different words that you see that that was there already. Right, mm-hmm. that Elohim and Yahweh are in this interplay with each other, mm-hmm. and they only come together if God provides for Himself a lamb. It mm-hmm. set up that kind of a, a dilemma. The dilemma was already there. I didn't put it there. Mm-hmm. This old dichotomy between the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, and Yahweh, and how He is Yahweh, and yet He's He's the messenger of Yahweh, mm-hmm. and that's in every place where He appears. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so. And this is something we may talk about, we may not, but, uh, you know, there's, I, I noticed something I was teaching out of uh, John this Sunday at church, and um, Jesus said, Jesus speaks of um, seeing him and seeing God only in past tense or in past perfect. You have seen. He speaks of knowing God as present. You know him and you have seen him. Hmm. Okay. And so even as Jesus is there and they're looking at him, he's like, you're not getting it. When I'm gone, you will. Okay? I will, I will move into the have seen category. And what, what I realized is that, that God, to see God through an eye of faith that we have to have, we can't be looking directly at him because faith and sight, uh, they, they displace one another. Mm. Okay? But if it's blind faith, like I told you a thing and you just chose to believe it, you know, without any sort of encounter, then that's inadequate as well. So what God does is that he appears in an ordinary garb, you know, throughout Scripture mm-hmm. as this messenger of Yahweh, and nobody knows it's him until he disappears, <laughs> mm-hmm. in every case, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I think this is the exact same. This is just some little sidebar reference, but if you look in the book of John— there's constantly this, you, you think you believe because you see, mm-hmm. right? And as soon as I'm gone, you really will see mm-hmm. that there's, you know, Jesus is like, and, and, he, and he, uh, he kind of depicts it. He's like, hey, you don't get this, um, but someday you will. And then, this, you know, John says, and then he hid himself from their sight, hmm. you know? That there's something, and, and you would say, well, that's really convenient, isn't it? Jesus is not here, and and uh, and you make this whole case that faith is only possible when someone's gone. Sure, it's convenient. You know, hey, I'm a skeptic. I, I, I'm with you. You know, what, what a convenient thing. 
Except that there's this constant refrain in the Old Testament where he's only known in that moment after he's out of sight. Mm-hmm. When he's there, they're like, show me, prove it to me, right? And he's like, okay, I will. But it's his disappearance that causes them to know who they've been with, you know? And so there's something so that's an about illusion. that. In John, that's an allusion to the... Uh, the appearances of the angel of the Lord right. in throughout the Old Testament. Right. Or or John and the authors of the Old Testament were describing the same reality, mm-hmm. and it just happens to coincide. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that John was thinking about those particular instances. Uh, he doesn't make it explicit. Mm-hmm. But this, this farewell address of Jesus is like, you're only going to see it after you don't physically see me. Mm-hmm. Then you will see me. Mm-hmm. You know? You can't see me through my physical appearance, mm. but when you don't have eyes on me, then you will see me. Mm-hmm. And and you can say, well, that's convenient if you just had John. And yet, if you have at least six references in the Old Testament where someone encounters the physical presence of God and they don't know it's him, they suspect it may be, right? But when he's gone, then they're just like, they see that it, this was God. I mean, they're terrified. They're like, right. how am I alive now? I've seen the face of the Lord and I've survived. They have these responses they yes. make afterward. Right. Yeah. And it, and it's really in every case from the first mention of this messenger of Yahweh in Genesis 16, Hagar is like just having a regular conversation with a guy. And then all of a sudden he's gone and she's like, whoa, that's the God who sees me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and on it goes. So mm-hmm. there's something about this seeing God's action after the fact and this record of what God has done and that we can only see it in retrospect. Hindsight really is 2020 when it comes to spiritual truth. So that's why the old Testament is this record that is that, you know, this, this group of people were charged with keeping so that then we can look back at it and be um, either, you know, have an opportunity to believe maybe some people still they're like, that's not enough. That's okay. Um, but that's what you get. So here we go, people. Yeah. That was our introduction to today's right, yeah. session on uh, Moses' successor, yes. Joshua. Okay, yeah. so let's dive into that. Yeah, so I just want to notice the difference between Moses and Joshua. This is this is a side reference. Now, you know, if you think about someone's Successor. So let's talk about big innovators and the people that came. Steve right behind Jobs. Him. Who yes. follows Steve Jobs? What's that guy's Tim name? Cook. Tim Cook. Now, which one of those two would you say is superior? Oh, Steve, by far. Really? Tim, yeah. I mean, yeah. Tim. Yeah, he took <laughs> yeah. he took the company where it needed to go next, but it was Steve that gave them the iPhone right. and the iPod. Right. Yeah. yeah. What is what has Apple really innovated yeah. since then? You know. Right. Tim Cook's like, let's make the iPad smaller and the iPhone bigger. Sell <laughs> <laughs> services. Yeah, yeah. Subscriptions. I, right, yeah. So, he, you know, he's the bean counter. He's about money. Yeah. Um, you know, my, one of my favorites is uh, Bill Gates and um, Steve Ballmer. You know, that guy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, okay, Steve Ballmer. Yeah. yeah, he's a bomber. He bombed yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. He bombed it. Yeah, he embombed it, man. He, he screwed <laughs> it up. I mean, I, they're just now recovering um, from his... And hey, I'm sure the guy was smart, but there's something different. There's something about being the second in command. There's a skill set mm-hmm. that to be a great second chair, I don't think it translates most of the time. Mm-hmm. So here we have Moses, who's like, ah, you know, he's he's the ultimate, right? right? And Joshua, who is the kind of heir apparent, you know, he he starts making an appearance pretty early, about you know Exodus 33 or so, right? And he's Joshua's aide. He's not even like the you know, CFO or the COO. He's Moses's aide. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he's the assistant, right? Mm-hmm. He's just following him around, mm-hmm. you know, taking notes, keeping up with his calendar. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not even that impressive in his, in his role, but there's a distinction made between Moses and Joshua early on in Exodus 33. What we get is Moses is, you know, he's had this encounter with God, his face is glowing. He's um, and, and there's this tent of meeting where Moses goes and he speaks with God face to face. Okay. Man, that must have been a place, right? That Moses is like, and so when he goes into it, all everybody from the community, they all stand at the entrance of their tent and worship because this pillar appears over it. And like God's visible, just manifest presence is just 
soaking the whole area. Mm -hmm. And Moses is at the epicenter. He is at ground zero, man. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, and it says, whenever, uh, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud, they, they came out and they stood at the entrance of their tent. They worshiped each in their tent. So they weren't going to like running over there, right? You just don't go over there. Mm -hmm. That's not healthy for you. Mm -hmm. And it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, Exodus 33, 11, as one speaks to a friend. Man, what a beautiful, wonderful relationship. And it says, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Hmm. Yeah, so I have heard preachers comment on this in the past, making the point that Joshua really loved God. Joshua was mm -hmm. really close to God. Like, Joshua couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. He'd stay behind. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that's true. Um, but the fact that he was even in there, you know, as like, this seemed to be something so unique to Moses. Um, and you would think Joshua would be like, at, just outside the tent, like he's just working his way in. But you wouldn't think that Joshua would be the guy who is there all the time. You know, mm -hmm. not only was he was he um, allowed in when Moses went in, mm -hmm. but he's there when Moses isn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, so there's something about this guy that is um, he's different mm. from Moses. So Moses has this. And, and Paul makes a deal of this in 2 Corinthians 3. He talks about how that this, this glow is, is diminishing off of Moses' face. There's something about this going back and forth, you know, that is mm -hmm. causing a degradation in this glory. And I would say, you know, if we're living on that level, and anybody who's tried to be a Christian in their strength, right? Read the Bible, try to do what it says— you'll find that you have these wonderful moments, these mountaintop moments, and you know they're going to fade. Mm -hmm. You know you know they're going to end. And you take them, and you're thankful for them, but you know they're going to die off, mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't think that that is the normal Christian life. I think that we, in, in this fellowship, in this dispensation, if you want to call it that, we are supposed to be going, as Paul says, from glory to glory. And, um, and I think it has to do with the fact that we have someone in God's immediate presence all the time on our behalf. Um, so being connected to Christ is this constant access to God, not just in these moments, but in a continual unbroken relationship and so, and so we'll you're saying there's sort that. of a hint there that Joshua wouldn't leave the tent is sort of a hint of his role as Moses' successor and as the one who points to Christ, Christ yeah. being Moses' ultimate successor. Right. The one who never leaves God's tent, the one who is always at the Father's right hand at exactly. his side. Yeah, yeah. So that's and, and so there's a distinction made between Moses and Joshua. Now, if you're telling the story and you just are telling a story about how Joshua had this uh, minion, uh, this guy who was his maybe disciple, and I mean, Moses he was had repaired. this Moses, yeah, yeah, Moses had this guy. Um, why would you, why would you have it so that this guy has access all the time? It's a really odd feature of the story. It is in the flow of the story, right, right. And your point is that, like with the other things you mentioned earlier, that now in light of Christ, we sort of see a significance here that we previously couldn't make any sense out of. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and again, if you're telling a story about a great hero who has been called to do a job, right? So let's just say Hercules is being called to these uh, particular, right? He has, he has these tasks he has to achieve. And, and let's say he has this one big final climatic task, you know, and he's got to kill the Hydra or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and you're telling the story, and it's this epic, and it, and it goes on and on, and there's, there's wins and losses and um, successes and failures. And, and, but you know that it's all leading up to the zenith where he finally wins, right? And so Moses is given this job, bring the people into the land, okay? Um, and he fails, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And so there's this, that, that even that, it's just the storytelling part of it is not really focusing on a human hero um moses you know he fails 
really when it counts the most, right? At the at the end of his life, when it's time to just really complete this task. And um, and what's written in to the story is Moses' failure in this. Now, if you're a Jewish scholar or something, and you're trying to compile an oral history of your people, would you depict Moses as the failure? You know? Yeah. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> Yeah, it just seems like Moses the lawgiver. I mean, yeah, right. It's, it's too yeah. important for that, and we can't have Moses, the giver of the law, uh, be a colossal failure. Right, right. At the end of his life, he, you know, all he can do is look over and see, you know. So, built into this story is this this kind of a a beginner and a completer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So very early on, I mean, Moses, yeah, he's in the spotlight, but he, but in every turn, he's kind of. Um, you know, he drops the ball here and there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. He's human and, and everything. We get that. Um, but but written into the script, almost on purpose, is that Moses is he's somebody that's going to take him and give him the law. Okay? But he's not the one to close the loop. Mm-hmm. And and that's almost, you know, that, that as soon as the law is in hand, we see that he's beginning to lose his way or he's beginning to be superseded Mm. as this Joshua begins to ascend. Mm. Yeah. And so, um, Moses in Deuteronomy three, you know, he's recounting how he asked God, Hey, what, what do you think, man? Can I just go on in? Remember Moses had that thing where he struck the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, seems like a small thing to us, but apparently, you know, it has to do with faith and what we start to rely on. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's not allowed to lead him in, but his successors built into that. And so we're told that, you know, Joshua is the one who's going to lead the people in, in um, Deuteronomy. Do you want to read that together? Uh, Sure. Just do, um, why don't you start at 26 through 28? Deuteronomy 3, 26. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me. Hang on. This is Moses talking to God? Yeah. But is that right? Yeah. Or Moses talking to the people this about Moses God's talking to the people. response okay. to him when he asked, let me go into the land. Okay. But because of you, you people, the right. Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. Yeah. So he's recounting all of this stuff, right? And he says, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a, you're going to have a successor. He's going to lead you in Joshua, um, you know, there as they've crossed the river and he leads them in, God says, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you this credibility as he stops the Jordan flow. Um, God uses that to kind of, rubber stamp, certify Joshua's ministry, leads the people in. Uh, Joshua has an encounter with somebody um, in Joshua 5. You want to read 13 through 15? Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, who do we think this is? This is the angel of the Lord again. <laughs> yeah. It's the commander of the Lord. It's it's the Lord. Yes. Same kind of um, sort of confusion mm-hmm. uh, that we see in those other passages where, you know, who is this? Is it the angel or is it God? Yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Joshua fully understands who he's talking to, but he knows he's not talking to somebody that you should trifle with. But but this guy knows who he is because, remember, in in Scripture, when a lesser being is worshipped, they say, hey, hey, stand up, stand up. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What does this one do? Take off your shoes. <laughs> Take off your shoes. Yeah. 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 Where have we heard that before? Same as burning bush. Right. Yeah. Whoever this is is accepting, mo- or accepting Joshua's worship. And is going farther and saying, "We're I'm standing here, so take off your shoes." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, which which gives us some insight. You know, a lot of people might think that Jesus is is uh, is always so fluffy and sweet, but uh, 
you know, he's the commander of the Lord's armies. He's mm-hmm. he's the the head of this invading force, um, this cosmic, um, powerful militia. You know that, uh, and and he comes with sword drawn. And uh, another thing I love about this is that, um, you know, if I were writing the story and I said, "Who are you for, us or our enemies?" Right. Oh, it's supposed. To, the answer is supposed to be, "We're for you, we're right? On your yeah, side, right? Yeah. yeah, at least I am. I mean, here uh-huh. on the very verge of this invasion, uh-huh. right? I've got my sword out. Let's go, Josh. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> yeah. Let's get in there. Um, that would have been a lot more comforting, uh-huh. I think, to Joshua if he said, "Oh, I'm for you." No, it would have no. been more self-serving for the Jews who wrote the story down, right? To depict God as being for them. Right. In this, in this encounter. Right. But that doesn't that say that there's a bigger picture, mm-hmm. you know, even on the eve of this invasion, um, there's a bigger picture being given. And so as Jesus comes into uh, Joshua will go on. Now, I guess we need to we need to make the point right that Jesus and Joshua are the same word. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been assuming that all along. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So what we call Joshua, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not as educated in the Hebrew, but the, you know, the name Joshua or, or Yeshua, right, means Yahweh saves uh-huh. or Yahweh's salvation. And um, so, and Jesus is some sort of like goes through Greek and then Latin, and it makes its way to English, and it's some kind of, you know, um, uh, rendering of right. the Hebrew word. Yeshua. Right. The Hebrew name, Yeshua. Yeah. And so we don't always get that. You know, it's like um, in the Spanish cultures, they'll name their kids Jesus. And to us, that seems weird, mm-hmm. you know, but then we name our kids Josh or Joshua, mm-hmm. you know, because we don't see that there's the same name. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they really are. And and that goes to, I guess that I say that to say that that name will transfer, it will carry on through um, this guy who... You know, I, I think that he's a type for Christ in that he is the successor, but he's a successor who supersedes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and that's not always the case. Right, right. Tim Cook, not so much. Right. Steve Ballmer, not so much. Right. But Joshua really did bring the people into the promised land, which was the goal. Right. And so Moses, who represents the law, I think is the point you're trying to make. Right. It's starting to dawn on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law can only take us so far. Right. Living under the sun can only take us so far. Yes. Living, uh, but Jesus brings us into the promised land. He brings us where we really want to be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Joshua is is the type for Christ, and he even has the name right, mm-hmm. and he has this encounter with him um, on the eve of of this invasion and the fall of Jericho. So. Um, and then the name passes on to a throughout scripture, but I think there's a priest in uh, Zechariah, and we've mentioned him before that um, that there's this crown, this bimetal crown that is that Zechariah is supposed to make, and he is supposed to um, put it on the head of a guy named Joshua, right? You want me to read verses 9 through 15? Sure. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6. six. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the, head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josedach. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. All right. Yeah. No. Okay, so you're, t- you're, yeah. you're wanting us to see some things that people mm-hmm. will, like myself will just gloss over. Take the silver and the gold. Yeah. I think you're making a point about that. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bimetal crown, and that's fine. I don't know if that's overly important, except that it is a, you might call it a double, a double crown. Okay. Okay. 
And that would not be significant if it weren't for the fact that there is a priest on a throne. Which is not typical. No, no, They're typically very separated. Taboo, right? There's two different tribes where, you know, you've got Judah is the kingly tribe and Levi is the priestly tribe. So, I mean, these things are firewalled off. But here we're making a double crown and we're putting it on the head of the high priest. Right. Whose name is Joshua. Right. Yeah. Who's a historical guy, Joshua, son of Jozadak. Right. right. But his name was Joshua. Right. And, and I think that when it says, here is a man whose name is the branch, I don't think that from that moment on they called that guy the branch. I think he's saying that this man, a man of, of this name, that the branch will come and be named Joshua. Okay. That his name is the branch. Yeah. You know, like he's not the branch, and we're not calling him the branch, but his name is the branch. Right. The yeah. branch will will have his name. Right. Does that make mm. so? Because mm. we know that none of this happened for Joshua, the son of Josedak. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is just a dude, ordinary dude, not a major player right. in the history. We're gonna we're gonna do this drama. We're gonna put this crown on his head, and it's really not about him. Right. It's symbolic of something that's gonna happen in the future. Right. And we know that this temple, the second temple, is eventually completed. And when it is, everybody's weeping because of how pathetic it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's small. It's it's out of cheaper metals. It's not. You know, the people who'd seen Solomon's temple. Were you know some were re- weeping from just joy of, of it being completed. The younger people, uh-huh. the older ones, were like, "This is so sad," you know. Uh, so we know that that this great prophecy of one who's going to branch out and build the temple. Now, if the temple, let's say the temple is in a an area that is um, thirty feet by sixty feet. Why would you say he's going to branch out and build a temple? Right? It, it seems counterintuitive. How do you, you know, yeah. how, do you, how do you branch out? How do you right. branch out and build a temple unless the temple is going to be no longer a physical temple? That seems to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, But there are people who are going to come from far away and build the temple. And I don't think that they're necessarily coming to Jerusalem, but they're coming to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And as they do, they build the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to do it with this one who is a priest on his throne. Mm-hmm. Does that sound Those like who anything? are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so he is this priest on his throne. Um, and that's, you know, we've made a deal out of the word Christ, which means the anointed one. So he's he bears really the prophetic, priestly, and the kingly anointing. Uh, and the only one, you know, the closest one. In scripture, to to carry those those anointings would be the prophet Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, priest, and judge. Mm-hmm. Samuel was a priest born from the line of Benjamin. <coughs> so okay. he's he's the non Levitical priest, uh, and he is the he is a judge in Israel by virtue of his anointing. You know, so. He's also a type, but that's the only it's the only one we get. I mean, Joshua, the son of Nun, we could say he was somebody who was a general. He had that authority. He was also a priest in that he was, you know, in the very presence of God. Even before the temple, he's he's the one living in that, uh-huh. and he is um, seems to have this prophetic anointing on him. So he's similar, but he didn't have an official role or title like Samuel did. Um, and Samuel type for Christ as well, but we could talk about that more some other day. Um, so I just thought let, let's just bring it at home here in that, um, we'll get up to the new Testament. So we know that God wanted his, you know, this boy born of Mary to be named, uh, Yeshua or Jesus. Right. So, and, and you were talking about how the phonetics traveled from, um, Aramaic Hebrew to Greek, then to, I don't know, through Latin and then English. Um, I don't really know the Latin piece. I'm going to have to look that no, up. No, I, I just made that up. I was just yeah. saying somehow we get to Jesus, but it's through a process of yeah. multiple languages and what end up with Jesus uh, in English. Yeah. I don't remember. I've been told it many times, but I don't remember things. But yeah. it's, it is the same name. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Greeks had a problem. They didn't have, um, they didn't have a Y sound in their language. Uh-huh. So that, that's what made it tough. Was any J, you know, anything we have with J in Hebrew is Y. And then, um, 
So if you were going to say a, a, a y name in Greek, you had to create a diphthong with two vowels. This, you had to have the iota and the, um, what is it, the eta or whatever. So you had to have i-e, okay, yay. And so Yeshua in the Greek became ye, Jesus. I don't know why they had the last part, but Jesus, okay? And then, obviously, you can see how you get from Jesus mm -hmm. in the Greek to Jesus in the English. Mm -hmm. We just we pulled the J back in, but now we say it, you know, with our anglicized J, mm -hmm. and then J, Jesus is the way we say it. All that to say is, is I think he knows who you're talking to. <laughs> I'm going to drop a peg here. When I say that Jesus' name is Yeshua, there's there's some people out there. Uh, I would call them of the, the Rumpelstiltskin faith. Um, where, you know, it's like God's up there. He's like, no, nope, that's not my name. No, it's not how you say it. I'm not answering your prayers. You know, <laughs> say it right. I'm just not coming down there. You know, mm -hmm. I, he knows who you're talking to, mm -hmm. right? I think he hears it just the same, mm -hmm. you know, and revelation. It's like all these people around the throne from every nation, tribe and tongue. Right. I don't think Jesus is going to be like, you know, you Greeks didn't have a yeah sound. I guess you're out, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, th I think he, when he hears it, however it's come down to us, it's the same. I, I just want to drop a peg there because when we say that Jesus' name is Yeshua, invariably there's somebody out there who's going to be ridiculous and say, you have to pronounce it this way. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I think that just completely misses the point. So um, we know that, you know, in Matthew uh, 1, 22 or whenever it was, uh, where is it? Joseph, uh, da, 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 yeah. Um, so he was told you will, you know, she'll give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Because Jesus, Yeshua means the Lord saves. Right. Yeah. And I think that's how God wants us to know him as the one who saves. Uh, ultimately, you know, if, if he has to pick, because throughout scripture, you know, people give God names based on their encounters with him. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned with Hagar, you're the God who sees me. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think God wants to be known as our as the one who saves, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what the ministry of Jesus is about. That's what saving faith is, you know. I really think we get what we expect from God, um, and we just need to know what maybe we know what what we're saved from. Then we can expect more and receive more. Mm -hmm. So the author of the, uh, to Hebrews, uh, this is. I have just a shorter section, but we could read the whole stinking chapter because it's awesome. Um, For but, if jo verse eight, uh, let's back up. So, man, I just don't know. Um, so God, uh, God tells the people that they're not going to enter His rest in Psalm ninety-five, right? Like, it, like He's in Psalm ninety-five. The psalmist is recounting the the temptation in Kadesh Barnea, uh, where he says. You know, where the people say, we're not going to go into the land, and then God swears on oath, you know, they're never going to enter my rest, is what the psalmist says that God said at that time, okay? And then, so the author of Hebrews is taking that story, uh, you know, in numbers of the temptation at Kadesh Barnea, and then he's taking Psalm 95, commentary on it, and now he's commenting on the ministry of Joshua, the son of Nun, and how that is that prefigured the ministry of Christ. So um, I guess in verse 4, you want to start there. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. 
For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Yeshua, Mm -hmm. let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. So, this brings a lot of things together. What do you notice? <laughs> oh, there's a lot there. Yeah. I noticed that this is a familiar passage to Christians like me um, who probably haven't really made much sense out of it. He's bouncing back and forth, Old Testament, various different Old Testament uh, passages, and he's drawing it all together, but it's uh, it's difficult to understand exactly what his point is. Yeah. I mean, you can get to the very end and say, we have Jesus, and he's gone in before us, and you can sort of get the immediate application. Mm-hmm. But as far as drawing all the threads of the Old Testament together, which he's clearly doing, yeah. Yeah. but understanding what he's doing, yeah. what, 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 what it means is difficult. It is. Yeah, it is. But he seems to be saying that Joshua, the son of Nun, is a type for Christ, um, that his job was to lead the people into God's rest, um, and yet... Later, David spoke of a rest still available to God's people, even within the nation, even at the zenith of the kingdom, that there is a call to enter into God's rest, right? Uh, So the author of Hebrews would say, here's one of those, you know, rips or holes or whatever Mm. that needs to be sewn up by Jesus in that, why would he speak? Why would he call people to enter into God's rest when... If, if the establishment of the nation is the is the rest is is the final rest then you know is what God wants us to come into why would he speak of another day mm-hmm. yeah and so he's saying that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God right and and so the one who enters God's rest rests from their works, I think he's calling us really, I think this is a twofold rest. This is one a rest in that we are receiving grace. We're not saved by works. Um, because the, the tension in the book of Hebrews is that there are Jewish people who are wanting to go back to the synagogue, temple Judaism way of life, right? And he's saying you're going back into a system of works, right? That is, that's the same as those spies, Instead of going forward in faith in the living God, you are retreating to what is familiar and prescribed. Don't do that. So rest from your works um, and enter into this relationship with God in his rest. Okay, so that's that's one. The other is obviously this fulfillment of rest that, you know, that in the culmination of all things, that there is a, a final rest. So. Really, I mean, the kingdom of God is one unified whole. As we live in that rest by faith, it's a faith rest life. So we live in that rest by faith, and we are, we've entered into eternal life. Mm-hmm. As you know, John says, I've written this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Mm-hmm. And as we live by faith, we've entered eternal life, and that life just continues after our body stops functioning. So we've entered into that rest. And he says, make every effort to enter into the rest, which is interesting, you know, uh, but it's hard. You know, the faith life is is not something that is native to us. Mm-hmm. We really do have to follow him there. Because there is this life under the sun. There's yes. just the way this world works, which is where we started our conversation. And there's pressure to live that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and I think the author of Hebrews, again, this is a... This is an Alexandrian Jew. It seems that it is an Alexandrian Jew in that he only seems to have had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He quotes from it verbatim and copiously, without exception, and he's writing to most likely Judean Jews. So the only way we can account for that is that he is um, a Jew of the diaspora. And, um, And I tend to think he's an Alexandrian Jew. I tend to think he's Apollos, but hey. You know, whatever. Um, we don't know that for sure. 
But all that to say is, is that when he read his Bible, there was no difference between Joshua and Jesus because his Greek Bible called the son of none, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So when he says, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, mm-hmm. right? He, he mentioned, he uses that name, right? He's drawing that connection, mm-hmm. right? But he's not, he's not Jesus, the son of none, right? He's Jesus, the son of God. He mm-hmm. traces his lineage somewhere else. Yeah. Right. And so where, where do we start? What did, what did Joshua do? Where did he live when Moses was coming in and out? He never left the tent. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so the author of Hebrews is making this point that there, that, that, that the Levitical priest would come and go, they could come in one time per year. And then the rest of the time they weren't allowed to come in. Mm-hmm. Right. But here he says that, that here is Jesus who is, he is ascended into heaven, right? So he's mm-hmm. in the immediate presence of God. He is a high priest, right? But he is also this general, this king who is leading his kingdom. And so we kind of close the loop. It's full circle. Mm. Jesus becomes the one who kind of takes up the ministry of Moses. He is the prophet who comes in, you know, as Moses' successor is, Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 18, one after me is coming who will, you know, do what I've done, speak as I have. Um, and yet this one coming is not just the, the underling, but he is the one who supersedes. Mm. So, Well, and then that ties in with some things like in, in Galatians that Paul talks about how, you know, we were held under the law until faith came. And so he right. seems to be working with this idea that there was the law and it only brought us so far. It had a purpose. But then when Christ came, which is when faith came, and there's the successor yes. to Moses. Yep. Not really Joshua, but the one Joshua pointed to, Jesus. Who is Joshua? Who the is branch. Joshua? The branch. Right. Thanks, yeah. everyone. <laughs> if you got questions about this, you can always email us, uh, discussion at recoverfaith.org. We'll see you next time. <laughs>